And Craig's going to come and read from Acts 23. Thanks, Craig. So long passage this morning. Uh, perhaps more than ever, you'll want to pull that pew Bible or fire up your cell phone Bible so that my mellow voice doesn't put you to, street, uh, to sleep in the, in the amount of time it will take to read through this. Um, so just to kind of bring us, remind us where we've come from, as we enter into this passage, you recall that um, Paul has made his way to Jerusalem and uh, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, he knows that he is facing uh, persecution and imprisonment. Um, but here he is faithfully. If you recall, they, the, the Jews found him in the temple, recognized him. A riot breaks out. Uh, they drag him outside of the town with the intention of beating him to death. Um, the tribune, the Roman uh, military leader, and his forces come and rescue Paul from the situation and take him into custody, only to find that he is a Roman citizen. Now they're obligated to protect him. And that kind of brings us up to this passage here now where the, uh, and I'll back this up, just a couple of uh, verses, and this will make this clear. So, page 932, if you don't have your uh, Bobby, uh, Bible with you, the uh, the rack Bibles there, the black ones, you'll find this, uh, page 932. So, Acts 23, I'm going to start at 2230. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest, Hananias, by the way, I'm going to throw in some Greek pronunciations here for some words that we commonly say in our English uh, pronunciation standards, commanded those uh, who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and others Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose. Some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, 
the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we kill, have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we're ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. Go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lucius, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death nor imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul, brought him by night to um, Antipatris, and on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul before him, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and Paul, when he learned that he, uh, and when he learned that he was from Kilikia, he said, "I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive," and he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's Praetorium. Thank you, Craig. Thanks for bringing in the Greek pronunciation. I may not do that as we flow through this passage. And again, reminder, as we seek to be faithful to every word of Scripture more than to the words of men is why we read extended passages, even though we could just summarize. Uh, we would rather not summarize God's Word where we can have it in its fullness. So that's the commitment to it. When we have larger passages, it does take more time, uh, we recognize, but it brings us hopefully to the same page 
As Catherine hinted at earlier in, in the tone of some of the, the songs that we'll be singing, I just feel led to begin this mini-series, five weeks, at least as my intention, uh, on the theme of suffering, and God's presence within it, uh, God's potential purpose in it, opportunity within suffering, how to uh, endure and remain faithfulness, remain faithful as God is faithful, and maybe the unexpected fruit in suffering. It seems somewhat fitting to uh, being a Lenten season as we move up into the Easter season. Uh, you, you don't get the resurrection without going through the crucifixion. You don't get to Easter without passing through Good Friday. Really true life for us doesn't happen until we pass through death. And so it seems fitting. In many ways, I began the series last week, somewhat unknowingly, but following Paul's journey up to Jerusalem. By the way, whenever you hear that, the up and the down, uh, don't think like a map. They didn't think that way. They thought topographically. So Jerusalem was up. Jerusalem was up on a hill. So you would always go up to Jerusalem. And if you were going somewhere else in the region, you were going down to, uh, down to Caesarea or Caesarea, uh, etc. So Paul is journeying to Jerusalem, under conviction by the Holy Spirit, we, we saw last week that he is falsely accused, he's arrested, he's put under trial, he's held by the Romans, and we saw how similar that was to the journey that Jesus took. And so you want to be like Jesus, was the topic uh, that I shared last Sunday, and really, uh, we don't have to go looking for persecution, but as we follow Jesus and try to remain faithful to him, it often comes to us in some in some form, we're not called to escape it either, but we're called to endure. Paul was doing exactly what Jesus had asked him to do, and yet he was suffering. Let that sink in. That may unsettle some of our preconceived theology. Paul was doing exactly what Jesus asked him to do, what the Holy Spirit sent him to do, and yet he is suffering. He's in custody, awaiting this judgment on his very life. Now, the Romans were in control of the judicial system, but it wasn't a tight system by any means. At any point, the tribune or a higher authority could have just been annoyed or tired at the situation and executed Paul, or in this case, simply released him to the Jewish mob, not intervened. And certainly, if any anyone wanted to pay the right amount of money, I think Paul could have had an unfortunate accident. Such was the situation of the day. So here's Paul's uh, circumstances. And I'm fairly certain that none of us would trade places with Paul, as if that were possible. And yet many of you are suffering. It's a wide spectrum, to be sure, as, as a family. But what I know to be true, and I don't know all of your stories, but I know this is to be true of You sitting here today, some of you are grieving deeply the loss of a spouse, a parent, a loved one, a friend. Some of you are watching a loved one suffer and slowly die of a nasty disease. Some of you are the caregivers of that person. Some of you have received that diagnosis that you didn't ever want to hear and are now living in response to that Some of you are opposed or oppressed at work or at school. Some of you have been falsely accused. Some of you wrestle with chronic pain. Some of you have been abused 
or still are. Some of you are ignored and marginalized. And you may be doing exactly what Jesus has asked you to do, and yet this is your reality. This is where the rubber meets the road of our faith. And if you're not in a time of significant suffering, praise God. But know that you're sitting next to brothers and sisters who are. You also have friends and neighbors and family members and co-workers who desperately need encouragement in a time of suffering and pain and trial. And I just wonder if they do come to mind, and even if you are in one of these descriptions of suffering, others would come to mind who need to hear the encouragement of Jesus. I believe Jesus wants to meet them in their suffering. Perhaps that comes through you in an opportunity. Perhaps it is an invitation to come. Hey, my, my pastor is beginning a series on suffering, and it's not easy. But would you join me as we move up to the Easter season? So if those come to mind, then, then please be faithful to respond as the Spirit leads and nudges. Because I believe Jesus wants to meet them in pain and suffering in their sense of aloneness and in the midst of their trials. No one knows what they're going through or what we're going through more than Jesus knows. No one is better equipped to minister to us. No one can relate better than the one they called the suffering servant. And no one loves us more deeply. Paul knew that as well as anyone. And yet not only is he suffering, he's feeling abandoned, alone. So how did he maintain faithfulness? How did he endure? Let's journey with him as we have been these next weeks. Now to be sure, Paul had a charisma it comes out. You hear that in the in the reading, didn't you? In fact, I wonder if there was just something that intrigued the Romans about him and the Tribune about him and, you know, kind of broke up the mundane of, of daily life as they watched Paul banter with these religious leaders. In fact, proving that he knows the law and the scriptures more than the high priest and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, that group of 70 or 71 that kind of set, set, set the rules for Judaism in the day. And Paul stands right up to them. In fact, uh, debates them pretty soundly. And so I wonder if they were just intrigued or thought of it as sport almost, watching them ch- him challenge and spar and be quick-witted and sharp-tongued. I, I read sarcasm. Uh, John Calvin did too in his commentary. Read sarcasm into Paul's response to the high priest when he calls him a whitewashed wall. Jesus said something similar to the Pharisees. You, you look good on the outside, but inside you're, you're decaying, you're death, you're rot- rotting. That's essentially what Paul was saying to Ananias. And in fact, Ananias was a corrupt, known as a corrupt, greedy, poor, to say the least, high priest. And I wonder when I read sarcasm into his response, would you revile the high priest, they said? And he said, I did not know, brothers. There's, there's nothing in this man. How would I know that he is the high priest? Did he say it with a smirk? And Paul stands up to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, whether he was intentionally trying to bring a divide to spare his life by bringing up the resurrection, or whether he was simply proclaiming the gospel continually, because at the center of it is the resurrection of Jesus. That's the dividing line. And so obviously that was going to be a part of all of Paul's preaching, but he certainly did a good job bringing this sharp discord between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's how you remember the difference, right? They were the Sadducees. They were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection and the eternity 
of their lives. And the Pharisees believed in that and the coming uh, faithfulness of, of God to redeem his people, to rescue his people, to heal. Uh, they believed in angels where the Sadducees didn't. And so they, they even almost start to defend Paul. They were the, probably the minority in the group of Sanhedrin in the day, the Sadducees being the majority. Uh, but either way, it created this sharp divide and was probably entertaining for the Romans and the tribunes to see them at each other. Uh, but they stepped in. Uh, the tribune steps in here. He, he actually takes credit later. You saw that in his letter to Felix. He takes credit for being the one to, um, you know, rescue Paul, to stand up, making himself look better than he was. When at first he thought, he thought Paul was this Ethiopian, uh, up, upriser. He didn't even know who he was. They're always trying to, everyone here is trying to make themselves look better than they are. And Paul is just trying to make Jesus look, uh, half as good as he really is to the best of his ability. So here's Paul now being uh, under guard, mistreated, harshly handled, slandered. So he's facing this, this form of persecution and uncertainty, and he's feeling alone. Now, to be, tr- to be true, he, he knew he wasn't alone in the broader sense of things, right? He had brothers and sisters that loved him deeply. We saw that in the passage leading up to Jerusalem when they were weeping at, at his call to go to Jerusalem, knowing what it would likely mean for him. And, and Paul knew that those communities were praying for him deeply. Even if, even if word hadn't gotten back to them yet, they were, they just were longing for God to spare his life. So he knew he wasn't alone in that regard, but here he is essentially alone and feeling abandoned. He wrote this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.16. He said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Where was the church in Jerusalem? Essentially, the disciples had done similar things they did to Jesus in the time, his time of greatest weakness. They withdrew from him. And this is what Paul experiences. Really, one lone family member, his nephew, an unnamed nephew, comes to his rescue. Probably not a believer. And yet God uses him in a way to help spare Paul's life. But Paul feels alone and essentially abandoned. And I wonder, do you feel that? Do you know that? Maybe you feel alone right now in life, that no one else can relate or understand. No one seems to care. They say they do, but then where are they? You know, one of the enemy's primary lies, and that's how he, that's how he works. He didn't come against Adam and Eve with a weapon or in violence to destroy them. He came with his tongue. He came with an idea. He seated doubt. And so this is what he does. And so if you feel alone, and we do find ourselves at times being alone or abandoned, others that we thought we could count on aren't there. They let us down. Sometimes we feel it too strongly. Sometimes we do put too much on others, and yet it can become a reality for us to know isolation. But what Satan wants to do is to get us to be crushed by that. And his, so the form of his lies in isolation are you are alone and no one does care for you in fact god himself has withdrawn from you probably because of your own sin sin that you know of and maybe even sin that you don't know of you got yourself into this situation which may be true but here's the lie and so nobody can help you out of it nobody will help you out of it you can't get out of it 
See, these, these are the tones of lies that the enemy has been using for thousands of years. Why would he need to use anything new? They should feel very familiar to us if we walked through suffering and in a time of isolation. Here's another one. You are the only one suffering like this. No, no one else could understand, even if they wanted to. See, by speaking these lies, we resist the enemy. We destroy his lies. We're called to stand firm and resist. How do we do so? By proclaiming the truth of God's word. Every one of those things is a lie. That the truth of God's word proclaims again and again. He will never leave us nor forsake us. You are not alone. There is always a way out. There is always deliverance. His grace and his love is abundant and it is perfect. The truth is, none of us are alone. And if that's your feeling or your experience, discern where it's actual and discern the lies of the enemy that have tried to crush you, suppress you, and destroy you. We stand firm in the truth of God's word. First of all, right now, look around. You are not alone. There may be a reason you're not at home listening to this online. Because you are not alone. And in this broader scheme of things, we know that's true. Just as Paul must have known he wasn't alone, the saints were praying for him and caring for him. The Apostle Peter said something similar. First Peter 4.12, and then I'll jump into chapter 5, verse 9. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So be firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You are not alone. Be reminded of that through God's word today. There's a vast community of suffering servants, of faithful believers, and some of them are right here. And you are not alone, far greater than anyone who could sit next to us. You are not alone because God is with you. His presence is always with us. This is the truth of God's word. He says to all of his children, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus, in some of his final words to his followers, said, and surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Not when you feel alone or you're daunted by the task of the mission before you, pray and call to me and I will be with you. Even that too would be encouraging though, wouldn't it? But he does more than that. He says, I am already with you always. Jesus himself is present in our suffering and he knows our suffering. Isaiah prophesied of him, Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He knows suffering, he knows slander, he knows marginalization and isolation. And so who better who promises to be with us always in our suffering, then Jesus, we are not alone. And Paul experienced the presence of Jesus with him in his suffering. 
Here's how he finished his testimony that he wrote to Timothy that I read earlier, 2 Timothy 4. So at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me, verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. What he's referring to is Acts 23, verse 11, which we heard read. The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Take courage, something Jesus similarly said. Do you remember when he walked on the water to the disciples in the midst of the storm, when the winds were against them? They didn't know he was there, and then he appeared. They were afraid. They thought it was a ghost, and he said, Take courage. Same thing he says to Paul. Take courage. It is I. I am with you. To be sure, this promise would help Paul endure the actual storms when he was on the boat being buffeted by the winds and the waves, when they were shipwrecked, over 200 passengers on this boat. God's promise through Jesus to Paul that you will testify in Rome helped him get through, though he still had to endure the shipwreck. He still had to go through the storm. But it's similar how Jesus could sleep in the boat on this, in the storm and the disciples are fearing for their life because Jesus knew that his purpose and mission was not fulfilled. And he said that to the disciples. Why are you afraid? I am with you. And he said, peace instilled the storm. In a moment, with a word, God can end the storm. God can end the pain and end the trial. And that's what I want to press into now is the question that then comes for some of us in the midst of that suffering and pain. So why isn't he? Where is he when I don't feel him in my suffering, my trial, my pain? In the desert times or the winter seasons, The dark nights of the soul, as St. John of the Cross maybe first coined the term. And Paul experienced that. Did you notice? And we could spend the rest of our time, and I will get us there, to the hope and the promises of God and presence in our suffering. But before we get there, did you notice the beginning of verse 11? The following night. The following night. The Lord came and stood by Paul. Paul had been beaten, threatened, abused, slandered, harshly handled, imprisoned, and left alone. And it seems that Jesus left him alone. Now, to be sure, we know he was with him, just as we've been proclaiming. He will never leave us. But for Paul, his experience was he was completely alone and deserted by the church and even by Jesus. Imagine that night imprisoned, wondering what would come of him, longing, praying, probably even having doubts about his own call and being constrained by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And now he's wondering, and all of the the disciples and even the prophet Agabus, they, they said, Paul, don't go. Did I mishear the Lord? Will, Will my life end here? And Jesus seemed to leave him there. Now, A.W. Tozer writes 
about the omnipresence of God, God is everywhere. But the manifest presence of God is another thing altogether. When we know He is near and with us, when we experience Him in some fashion or some form. And you often hear me pray, and we have prayed today, and we even sang today, Lord, we do not need to invite you here, but our prayer is that we would become more aware of your presence. So God will leave us in times of suffering without his manifest presence. He will allow us to feel alone. You remember when Lazarus died and Jesus heard about it, Mary and Martha sent him word about Lazarus being on the brink of death. And John 11, verse 5, Now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If you read that, you probably had to read it again if you heard it. Jesus loved them. And so when he heard that his beloved friend was ill to the point of death, he stayed two days. He let Lazarus die, and he let these sisters who he loved watch him die. When they did believe that if Jesus came, he would spare Lazarus' life. And I think we could go to a number of other places as well. Jesus didn't delay his presence because he was uncaring or unloving, but because he loved them. And for Paul that night, that long, dark night, Jesus left him to experience the suffering. With no apparent answer, it wasn't until the following night that Jesus came and stood by him and reinforced his call and his provision for Paul, which must have been absolutely a blessing And I wonder if Paul would have said, where were you last night, Jesus? So the only thing I can conclude in situations like this is that there is something in the void. God isn't, otherwise we would conclude something completely false about who God is, that he's distracted, distant, aloof, uncaring, unable, all things that the scriptures proclaim the opposite of. So then if God doesn't manifest his presence, then he leaves us in a time of suffering and feeling alone. Then he is doing something. There is something in the void. As we cry out to him without an answer, something happens to our faith. And the Lord intends to grow it and strengthen it. When Thomas needed to see Jesus and see him and even touch the scars and get his hands around him. Jesus said to him, John 20, 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Okay, good. He's saying good. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Blessed are those who have not seen me, who have not experienced me and yet believe. There is a blessing that comes in the void where we are longing for the presence, a good longing, a right longing, a right prayer. We cry out to him. There is a blessing that comes as we choose to exercise faith in those places and maybe grow in a way that we could never 
otherwise grow? Are you in a time of waiting and crying out? A long or dark night of the soul. R.C. Sproul said this about even a crisis of our faith or a deep depression that we can experience. He said, a Christian can have joy in his heart while there is still spiritual depression in his head. They're not mutually exclusive. The joy that we have sustains us through these dark nights and is not quenched by our spiritual depression. The joy of the Christian is one that survives all downturns in life. If that's your current experience, then be reminded you're in good company. People of exemplary faith who God has used mightily also had times of desperation, times of spiritual depression, times of fear and uncertainty, feeling alone and isolated in their suffering, that God had left them or no longer loved them. Begin with Job. Job 30, verse 20, really the whole story of Job's life is this. But he says, I cry to you for help and you do not answer me. I stand and you only look at me. Many of the Psalms proclaim this. The Psalms of the sons of Korah, Psalm 44, 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Certainly David expressed this longing in many of his psalms. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus himself cried out that very thing on the cross. David goes on, Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 6, still David, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Jeremiah, he was nicknamed the weeping prophet. He wrote a whole book called Lamentations. And all of these These men who are leaders, servants of the Lord, faithful, are actually heralded as men of faith who knew the heart of God, who were doing exactly what God had called them to do. As in the case of Jeremiah, we go beyond Scripture too and just think of Martin Luther, A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Alliance movement. Both of those men had incredible depression and despair. Likely inspired by the enemy, but just they were overwhelmed by it at times. There's nothing uncommon about this. And I'm here to proclaim to you, I do not know, if this is your reality, recognizing a spectrum, do not deny, do not deny your own pain and suffering and trial because someone else's might be worse. Recognize it. 
pray for those others. But often in counseling, if I'm counseling someone who is experiencing the deepest pain or suffering they've ever experienced, that's still their high watermark. And it diminishes that because God hasn't asked you to walk through what someone else he's asking to walk through. And he's there with them. He's not with you in that same suffering. So to diminish your pain and suffering by saying, well, it could be worse. Look at so-and-so. It could also ignore what God wants to do in the midst of your suffering. Because he's asked you to be in this place. Not to be crushed by it, but to endure. He is with you. So I cannot promise the when, when his answer comes, when you experience his presence, or how, but that it is coming. And I can promise that on, on the promises of Scripture, that he will not leave you nor forsake you. It is coming. How he does that and when is what he alone has to answer for you. And you have to come to him for that answer. Man, the difference of knowing how long pain is, is a game changer. I remember reading this little this study about you, 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 who's been to the dentist, loves the dentist, just loves getting numbed and drilled. And I started asking, how long will this take? Like, give me the seconds, or at least approximately. Because when you're there getting drilled in, if you have no idea how long that's going to take, is this minutes? You know how they, they say so nicely to you. If, there's, if it's too uncomfortable or too much pain, just raise your hand. And I remember reading this study that something like five or ten, or ten times more likely to raise our hand when we haven't been told how long it's going to last. The simple knowledge of knowing. It's going to be about 20 seconds here. Will help us just get, we can figure out how to get through that and endure that. We sang about the eye of the storm. When you're in the eye of the storm, things are still pretty tense, but they're not at their most severe. And what you know is if you've endured the first half, then there is a second half. Oh, okay. There's a second half coming. It's okay. When you're in the middle of the the eye of the storm, you've already been through half. And while you gear yourself up for the next half, you know how long it's going to last. There's something so vital in knowing the length of that suffering. And that's what's so hard. When we're in the midst of pain and suffering, where we don't know where the eye is. We don't know where the center is. He alone is our refuge and our strength. He alone provides the way out. This is what Paul knew. Paul had written 1 Corinthians at this point already, and I wonder if needed to be reminded of this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, we've mentioned this before. This is often the most, one, of, one of the most misquoted scriptures. God will not give you more than you can handle. That's not what it says. In fact, it actually implies God will give you more than you can handle. The temptation, giving in to the temptation is what crushes us. The temptation is to doubt God. 
to doubt his goodness, to doubt his presence, to give up. That's the temptation in the midst of trials, pain, suffering. If you read anything about Paul's journey and his letters, you could not come to the conclusion that God will not give you more than you can handle. Circumstances in our life are more than we can handle. And there's a reason for that, because we're not meant to do it alone in our strength. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But by my strength, in the strength of the Lord, you can accomplish anything. So there is a way out for you coming. There's a way of rescue. There's a way of peace. There's a way of coming to victory and deliverance that may not change circumstances. And that's how I can proclaim that the promise to you, whether you know you're in the eye of the storm, whether you have no idea how long it's going to last, there is a way out and it's coming. And the presence of God is there with you. Jesus himself is right with you. That picture of the storm when the disciples were on that boat, Jesus was one step away and they did not know it. And I want you to see yourself, if you're in that place, that Jesus is coming towards you. And he may be that one step away, that one night away from making himself known. It is I. Take courage. I am with you. And this is where our faith must rest. That he is present. That he is working that he is growing us, he is drawing us into life and death dependence on him and him alone. He is not unaware, he is not uncaring, and he is not unloving. He's reminding us also that our hope is not in this life or in circumstances, but in our heavenly citizenship. That we could say like Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus promises Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, for they will be comforted. Stand on the promises of Jesus. I don't know when or how that comfort comes, but that's his word to you. Blessed are you while you mourn, you will be comforted. This is Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who are hungering and thirsting to be close to Jesus. You will be satisfied. We stand on the promises of God. We reject and rebuke the enemy for his lies. God has not left us. This is how Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. It's okay in those places to say, I have no idea what God is doing. Where is he? I don't see it. I can't feel him. We are perplexed. This doesn't line up with the character of God that I thought I knew. But not driven to despair. That's where the enemy wants to take you. Past the perplexion. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. That's his promise. He will not forsake us. We may be struck down, but we will not be destroyed. Because we carry in the body of death, Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our bodies. 
It may be true in this life that we will walk through times of affliction, being perplexed and persecuted and struck down, but we will not be crushed, driven to despair, forsaken, or destroyed. That is the work of the enemy, and we renounce them as lies. He would love to crush us and overwhelm us, but the overwhelming promise of Scripture is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The most prevalent refrain in the Psalms is not, I cried out to the Lord and he did not answer. It is, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me again and again and again. In Psalm 139, 7 and following, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. That's his omnipresence. He is always right there. May we see his manifest presence. And when we don't, may we be faithful despite, because it is our call. The prophet Habakkuk never seemed to experience the presence of God. I preached through this great book a number of years ago, and he testified this, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. So in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of these years, make it known. You hear the longing of his heart to see God, to experience him, to see his work. And he ends his letter, his prophecy this way, Though the fig tree does not blossom, or fruit be on the vines, or the produce of the olive grove would fail, and the fields yield no food, so famine, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Basically, death reigns. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. For God the Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Habakkuk got to a place, though it was not easy, where he could proclaim the promises of God and who God was, regardless of his experiences. And let me conclude with this picture from the famous Ephesians, or famous Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith where the writer proclaims, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And then he recounts a number of faithful men and women in God's story. But he ends this way after recounting a number of specific individuals. He ends generally in Hebrews 11.36. He says, many others have suffered. So you're not alone. Many others have suffered, and they've suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They've even been stoned or sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about destitute in skins of sheep and goats, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered about in deserts and in the mountains and in dens and the caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that that verse is quoted a lot without understanding what the cloud of witnesses is that he's talking about. These incredible saints 
who have walked with faith in the midst of suffering. That's who we are with. That's who's gone before us. We are not alone and we are surrounded by them. So therefore, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Our only hope, church, brothers, sisters, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Just as Jesus fixed his eyes on his Father in his time of greatest suffering and persecution, That even Jesus had to get to a place through grieving and anguish where he could say, Lord, take this from me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. We have to get to a place where we can do that. It's incremental. We pray along with the Father in Mark 9. I believe. Help my unbelief, Lord. Grow me. And so grow us, Lord. To pray these prayers in this way. Manifest your presence, Lord, amongst us today. Let today be the day where we sense you in our suffering. We pray for rescue and deliverance and healing. I pray that for each one, knowing some of the specific stories and not all. You know every one. And if you say not yet to that, We still rejoice in you. Because you alone are our strength and our God with us. You know better than we could ever know. Grow our faith. Draw us to yourself. But manifest your presence, Lord, please. If you're one step away, take that final step. We're reaching out our hand to you. By your spirit, would you embrace us. Wrap us in your arms, regardless of how many times we've run from you, lived as the prodigal. Draw us back that we too could proclaim like Jesus does, not my will, but yours be done for your glory, Lord. In our healing and joy, we pray. Amen.